You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Spirit that you would surprise us with your word today, that you would speak truth into our lives, uh, those things that we long to hear and maybe even those things that we simply do not want to hear. And so, Lord, use even me, uh, a reluctant preacher, uh, to proclaim uh, the joy and the amazing grace that we find in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Preaching a stewardship sermon creates a particular unease for me, as I believe it does for you too. If you've grown up in the church, you will have heard one of these where it sounds like the regular preaching of the word takes a hiatus in order to remind us of the need to give. It can easily become like an NPR fund drive. We know it's necessary, but it's still annoying. Warren Wearsby, the Bible teacher, said, During my years of ministry, I have endured many offering appeals. I have listened to pathetic tales about unbelievable needs. I have forced myself to laugh at old jokes that were supposed to make it easier for me to part with my money. I have been scolded, shamed, and almost threatened. And I must confess that none of these approaches has ever stirred me to give more than I already planned to give. In fact, more than once, I gave less because of the worldly approach. Wearsby's experience may not be different from yours, or even Mark Twain, who once said that he heard a preacher preach on giving money to the church, and he was so upset by the overbearing nature of the sermon that Twain took money out of the plate when it was passed later on in the service. Well, this morning I'm going to preach a sermon on giving, but it will be different, I hope, than the ones that I've just described. I really have delighted to learn so much from our passage this morning as I prepared to preach this sermon. This passage is the passage that your stewardship ministry chose as a guide in how we are to discern what it is that we do about stewardship this year. I've read it any number of times in the past, mostly in a devotional capacity, but I've never really read it in the context of discerning what it is that God wants me to give. So let's look at this passage this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. That's page 968 in your Advent leather-bound Bibles. And I hope you do open them because I'm going, it may not make a lot of sense what I'm about to say unless you follow along. And I hope that you'll allow me to share some of the surprises that I have discovered in God's Word concerning giving from this passage. Surprise number one. The basis of Christian generosity is grace, not law. This point will be woven throughout my sermon, so I don't feel the need to go into it right now. But I hope that by the end you will see that our motivation for giving is grace and not the law. It comes from a changed heart, not by compulsion, which often stands at odds by the typical pitch that churches give When it comes to giving, I'm not going to twist your arm because this passage doesn't twist your arm. Well, maybe it does twist your arm, but not in the sense of giving money, 
but in the sense of giving your life over to Jesus Christ. So that's the first surprise. The basis of Christian generosity is grace, not law. The second surprise is that the New Testament does not set the 10% tithe as set out in the Old Testament as a standard. Alarm bells are going off all over Birmingham right now because what I've just said for some of you is complete and total blasphemy. But where do we read in the New Testament that giving 10% is what we ought to do? It certainly was the Old Testament law. Jesus even criticized the Pharisees over their tithing practices. You may remember that he said that, you know, you tithe even 10% of the herbs that you have. I mean, imagine how scrupulous that is. You know, it's getting to be that time of year where you might fix a big pot of chili, and as you put the spices in, you make sure to take 10% of what's in your paprika bottle or your cumin bottle or what, and you set it aside and you say, this is what belongs to God. And Jesus is saying, there's nothing wrong about the 10% tithe, but beware anybody who says that this is an absolute maximum as well as an absolute minimum. Because, of course, the New Testament teaches that everything belongs to God. He doesn't just own 10% of what you and I have. He owns it all. And at the same time, maybe 10% is a good goal for you. I don't want you to think that it's the minimum or the maximum, but you might find it helpful to set a standard. You might want to say to yourself, God, this is what I want to give to you. Out of the gratefulness of my heart for what the Lord Jesus has done in my life, for how God has provided for me, I'm going to give this amount. Whether that be 10%, 5%, 50%, or even 90%. But hear what Paul says in verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. You decide. Paul doesn't say you need to make sure that you give the 10%. But no, after praying about it and whatever God has laid on your heart, that's what you ought to give. And and by the power of the Spirit, you're, you're going to feel and you're going to know how much it is that you ought to be giving. And if you know that you're walking in God's will in that regard, you're going to experience freedom. You're not going to experience a burden. But whatever it is that you've decided in your heart, stick with it. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth who's taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem. And it's actually a really funny passage. And so if you go back to the beginning of chapter 9, Paul says, Now it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So I really don't need to write you to to remind you to be generous to give, But I'm going to remind you anyway, and and I want you to know that your claims to being generous have made their way into Macedonia so that you've stirred them up to be generous. But I'm also going to send the brothers to you so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so so you may be ready as I said you would be. I'm going to write you, and I'm going to send people to you. 
Why is Paul saying this? Well, if you know anything about the Corinthian church, they were big talkers. Big talkers whose lives showed a significant disconnect between their declarations and their behavior. And so Paul, in a very pastoral way, by saying, I'm writing you, I'm going to send Macedonian brothers to you, is saying, I know how hard it is for you. Because out of the excitement of your heart, you're going to say, I want to do all of this for God. But then when it comes time to give, you find all kinds of distractions. You find all kinds of needs in your own life. And that exuberance begins to fade in light of the real burdens that you're carrying right now. And so Paul's not saying, I'm going to hold you accountable, but Paul's saying, I know how hard it is. So I'm writing to encourage you, and I'm going to send some people along to encourage you on, and just let your yes be yes and your no be no. The basis of Christianity, of Christian generosity is grace, not law. The second surprise, the New Testament doesn't necessarily set a finite standard for giving. And the third surprise, giving is about what God is able to do, not what you're able to do. The early church was poor. Yes, there were wealthy members among them, but by and large, Christianity was not made up of the rich and the elite and see how God used them to turn the world upside down. Paul is not saying, hey, I know you've got some heavy hitters in that Corinthian congregation, and if you could just get to them, then we could get this offering for Jerusalem together. No. What does he say in verse 8? And God is able to make all grace abound in you. God is able. God will supply. And this fact runs throughout the entirety of this passage. So you can relax this morning because this sermon is about what God is able to do, not what you're able to do. We're not talking this morning about your obligations, but God's promises. And so what is God able to do? What is he promising? Well, it's helpful if you take verse 8 and you break it down by commas. And you'll be able to see what God promises, not just to the Corinthians, but to you and me who are reading these living words today. Well, in the first instance, Paul says that God is able to make all grace abound to you. Well, what does Paul mean by grace? Well, if you look over... In chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, this is how he defines grace in the context of giving. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That is a very poor church. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The grace of God taking deep root in the heart. All the grace that you need is found in Jesus Christ. Full stop. Perfect forgiveness, perfect redemption, and you are made a new creation in him. And when he gets a hold of your life, 
This perfect submission, this perfect bliss that we often sing about becomes a reality in your life and that you are given over to a spirit of generosity. And this is the grace that Paul is talking about that will abound in you. All grace abounding in you. All the grace that you need is found in Jesus Christ. And notice that he uses the word all five times in this one verse. All grace, all sufficiency, all things, all times. And when he says every good work, it can be translated as all good work. This use of the word all is categoric and sweeping. It prevents us from falling into rabbit holes. There are no but. God does it all. He does it all. There's actually no impediment to our generosity. When he says all times... Yes, even in the midst of COVID and economic uncertainty. And he goes on, and it sounds as if God is making it even harder on himself. When he says, all sufficiency, having all that you need, and we live in a world, and Paul even lived in a world, especially the the whole Greek uh, understanding of philosophy of the need to be self-sufficient. But the sufficiency that God is talking about here through Paul is not a self-sufficiency, but a sufficiency that God provides for you. That your life is sufficient in him, that he is going to provide all that you need, and that God is able to do all that is necessary to make us sufficient. That we are abounding in every good work. You know, it's funny to me that Paul doesn't say here, abounding in generous giving. That would make more sense in light of the fact that he's talking about giving an offering to the church in Jerusalem. But Paul is actually broadening the idea of our giving beyond money to include our time and our talent. Giving to him, giving to the life of his church, Not just money, but actually giving yourself over totally to the work of the gospel. Now, I do want to note a little bit of caution about the other ways in which we might be able to give. Because we typically are very happy to give out of our abundance, but we're rather reluctant to give out of our poverty. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus at the temple says, uh, we're reminded in Luke 21, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Jesus doesn't criticize the rich, but he shows the striking contrast of those who give out of their abundance versus those who give out of their poverty. Because the one who gives out of their poverty is demonstrating in their lives that God is able. If you have a lot of time, we hope you will give it to the service of the gospel. 
If you have a lot of money, we hope you will give it to the service of the gospel. If you have a lot of talent, we hope you will give it to the service of the gospel. But if you were impoverished in any of these areas, would you give out of your poverty to the service of the gospel? And Paul knew what it meant to be poor. Paul is not one of those televangelists who's jetting around the Mediterranean uh, in his, well, whatever the equivalent of a Learjet would be today. He's not one of those people who says, if you just uh, give me money, that God will bless you. In fact, Paul's ministry was marked by not taking money from anybody so that he wasn't beholden to anybody. And listen to what Paul says. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, many of us know verse 13. We've committed it to memory. But how many of you know that that verse is actually in the contents of God supplying your need? It's not a verse about like, I'm going to get a hundred yard running game this Friday when I play the football team because God can do all, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But actually in the midst of adversity, especially financial adversity, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is those things that God has called you to do in the service of the gospel as becoming a child of God by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And many of you have known what it means to be poor. Poor in talent, poor in time, poor in money. When I was a seminary student in England, I didn't have any money. And I don't mean student budget, but many a day, most days in fact, I didn't have breakfast. Uh, I saved my cereal for my evening meal, and the only meal that I had was the college meal that was provided midday. Uh, I didn't have money to go out and, and do much of anything because all of my money was being poured in tuition, and I knew that that's where God wanted me to be. And funny enough, during that time, I realized as I read the Bible that where often the Old Testament promise is one of prosperity, the New Testament promise is adversity. But in that adversity, there is God, and I find that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God is able, and God's provision doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have wealth all the time. And so I was surprised that giving is about God's ability, not yours or mine. The fourth surprise is the hilarity of giving. Back up to verse 7. Each of one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, and not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Do you know that that word cheerful actually means hilarious? That God loves a hilarious giver. What does it mean to be a hilarious giver? It is to be someone who has been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ And their lives have been taken over by him. 
You know, it's funny, after you come into a relationship with Jesus and you reflect back on where you were once before and where you are now, and there's sort of an absurdity to it. Grace, it turns out, is truly amazing. And where it often turns us to tears, it often can cause us to laugh and shake our heads in disbelief. What is this love that God has for me? It's too big for me to comprehend and to understand why in his mercy he would save a wretch like me. Well, verses 10 through 14 show us what it means to be a hilarious giver, and time doesn't allow me to go into these, but run through them very quickly. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Do you know that God is not just going to supply you bread, but also seed for future sowing? And that in your giving, that it's actually going to cause people to say, thank you, God. There was an old lady that I used to visit in a parish that I served in Virginia And she was well into her 90s, and there was a wonderful church in that area, not the church that she went to, but every week they would bring her a meal. And it was a meal that would last her a couple days, and they would bring it in and set it on the counter, and uh, I was staying in the living room, and she told me she insisted upon answering the door, and as she closed the door, thinking that this person couldn't hear them, but because she was so hard of hearing, she said, thinking to herself, thank God. Thank God. For that ministry and that generosity, thank God for them. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from the confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. This offering is going to Jerusalem, and do you understand that our generosity blesses the church? And the church, in turn, blesses us because when we come into fellowship with Jesus Christ, he gives us brothers and sisters who come around us in our times of need, yes, even our financial times of need, and then we say, let us help you. We're family. And they begin to long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you that he's shown you in the Lord Jesus Christ. A hilarious giver. Have you been surprised by grace? Do you know and live that generosity is motivated by grace and not the law? Have you offered yourself up to Jesus Christ? Have you sought his wisdom in deciding what you ought to give? Do you understand that God is able, which means you're not? We're not talking about charitable giving this morning. We are talking about the great work of the everlasting God in sending Jesus into the world to live, die, and to be raised for you and for me. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let us pray. Oh God, surprise us. We pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to discern what you're doing in our midst and that you might use us, that the gospel might go to the very ends of the earth, and that others might give thanks to God 
as you use us. In Jesus' name, amen. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God.
beseech thee, Almighty God, that the words which we have heard this day with our outward ears may, through thy grace alone, be so grafted inwardly in our hearts that they may bring forth in us the fruit of good living to the honor and praise of thy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The peace of God which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.